I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And we're the Trade Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS, where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. In this episode of The Trade Guys, we welcome the Honorable Tim Grosser, who is New Zealand's ambassador to the United States. Ambassador Grosser is one of the world's leading experts on international trade. He was New Zealand's trade minister. He was also New Zealand's ambassador to the World Trade Organization, and he was New Zealand's chief negotiator in the Uruguay round. But first, we had to ask the trade guys, what does the midterm election mean for trade? Then we talked to the ambassador about the CPTPP, the WTO, China, and even the donkey theory of management, all on the trade guys. As we just said in the intro, we have a trade eminence extraordinaire ambassador from New Zealand, Tim Grosser here. Uh, but before we get to a lot of international issues that we need to talk about, got to put it to the trade guys. Today's the day after the midterm election. Does the Democrats taking the House set up a grand bargain on trade? What, what, what's different here? You want to go first? We'll well, give look, it to Scott, the Republican. Sure. Uh, look, uh, first of all, we have a new Scott chair. the Republican because the Republicans no longer control the House? Is that, or are they because they that, control the Senate? That's right. I've, he I've, he I've, deserves deference because he's now in the minority. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Having, right. having spent most of my career working and playing well with both sides. Yes, you have. <laughs> and, and, and at CSIS, for the record, at CSIS, we are bipartisan. We play well with both sides. That's why you're listening to the trade guys. So, Scott, yeah, in any case, look, carry on. It, it, it will make, make for an important change, uh, first of all. Uh, in terms of the level of oversight uh, that will be conducted. Uh, that's probably the most the thing we'll see soonest. New chairman of Ways and Means, R- yes, Richard Neal. Richard Neal. Uh, Replaces Ken, Kevin Brady from Texas. And uh, soon-to-be chairman Neal is a professional. He's a longstanding member. He is uh, very thoughtful in terms of his his uh, policy positions and has a, a long history of working across the aisle. So he, we have a, a what, what would, what would set itself up to be an opportunity for collaboration. I think it's going to take some time to play out. The USMCA is, uh, to my mind, the first test of this. And uh, my guess is the Democratic Party will will now have to, particularly the House Democrats, will have to develop a trade position, a policy position that gains the support of their members. They haven't had that in a while. Their position for a long time, particularly in the minority, has been no. <laughs> and so, mm-hmm. and, and that's that's been pretty straightforward. It will take some time to develop that. I think they'll use, uh, they'll use the, uh, uh, the ability to conduct oversight uh, to do that. Uh, I do, don't think that we're going to get off to a really uh, positive start with USMCA. In fact, I think the first thing that will happen after the ITC report is published is that the uh, Congress will uh, do what it can to send it back for further, further work, particularly yeah, but what, what you're saying, What you're saying, Scott, is that the, the Democrats, this, this is an issue that Democrats and the president can work on together. Well, it's an area where they can where they can have a fight. There's going to be more okay. more drama. I don't think it'll wait for the ITC report because the time. If, Tell if you, our listeners what the ITC report is. Well, the law requires the International Trade Commission, which is an independent agency, to do a basically a, an economic impact evaluation of of trade agreements. Yeah. The law gives them 105 days from the day of signing to do that. Uh, in this case, they've already started, uh, and it doesn't have to take 105 days. And uh, technically, the president doesn't have to wait for it uh, to submit the bill, although if he doesn't wait for it, he gives the opponents 
a major talking point. This is why are you making us vote in an so agreement? So starts a fight. Well, he starts a fight. Why, you know, why vote on a trade agreement when you don't have the study that tells you if it's any good? So usually they wait, you know, they wait for it. But you, that period is not a period of, of silence. It's a period of negotiation. I mean, and what will happen, and I think Scott's uh, put his finger on it, is that the, the Democrats will, will hold this hostage uh, at two levels. One, they're, 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 they have to say, not good enough. They've been critical. USMCA, not good enough. Not good enough. We would have done better. I mean, that's what, yes. the, that's what the party out of power always Easiest says. Easiest thing to say, absolutely. And Will they be singing the song? They mm, w- <laughs> no, they'll have their own no. songs, believe me. They'll have no their own song. song. <laughs> We're and talking YMCA ambassador, of course. You know. Yes. Ambassador's a rock and roll guy. We're going to get to that in a second. He can do that for us if he wants. I'm um, not sure. He's, he's he's a pretty cool guy. I don't know if he's going to start doing semaphores here. Let's, well, it's let's, also yeah. it's also no video, so you can't not really, seen here. You can't really see. That's right. Yes. Anyway, they'll say not good enough. They'll say particularly not good enough on labor because an important part of their constituency is the AFL-CIO uh, because the larger part of their constituency is pro-trade. More pro-trade than Republicans are right now. This is interesting. They're not going to write off the agreement entirely. The business community is going to tell them, uh, we need an agreement. Since the president is probably going to withdraw from the current one when he submits the new one, uh, nobody wants to be blamed for ending up with nothing, which is the worst possible outcome. So I think they're going to say, number one, uh, to Lighthizer, go back and get more on labor which I think can be done. Yeah, uh, We room. have a New Mexican president uh, who's farther to the left. AMLO. And, and I think there will be a willingness to do that. Uh, so one wild card is whether they can do that. The second wild card, of course, is what the AFL-CIO says about the product. Uh, they've, but, are, they've already said not good enough of the current yes, product. And it's what they say about the new product. The new, the new product, yes. yes. Right. But if he comes back, if that's all there is, and he comes back with a better thing, then there's a happy ending scenario here. The Democrats say, we fixed it. You know, you the administration did a lousy job. We made it better, so now we can vote for it. The, Trump will ignore that and say, "Vote for it anyway," because it was my agreement. and It's a good one. It's a beautiful. So one. I think it's a beautiful one. The other wild card, though, I think, is that the Democrats, and, and in fa- fairness, the minority party, the minority party that controls the body will will uh, the party now out of the White House that controls the body will always say the same thing, uh, which is they'll hold it hostage for something else. Uh, the infrastructure bill, a tax thing, don't build the wall. I mean, one of the, the one of the entertainments of the next two months is going to be the Democrats arguing over what the ransom should be. Yeah, and if it's too high, then they're going to, you know, they 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 they're going to have a problem. Right. Okay. So so do the Democrats have a grand strategy? No. Okay. That's the. And that's I, the I don't one think I not yet. And Scott thinks they're going to have a policy. I'm. Uh, having been been a Democrat my entire registered vote life, I think that's expecting a lot out of them to be to have a policy. I think it's more likely that that they're going to deal with issues as they come up, and they're going to deal with it in the way Scott suggested, which is a lot more oversight, a lot more criticism, complaints about lack of transparency, complaints about lack of consultation, all the complaints you've been hearing already that nobody paid any attention to because they don't have a megaphone. Now they have a megaphone. Now they have subpoena authority. Now they set the hearing agenda. So you're going to hear a lot about uh, how poorly the administration is conducting its policy. You're going to hear a lot less about how poor that policy is 
Because they don't really have an alternative, right. and I don't and, think they're going to have and one. And this remains a very difficult issue. It's important to remember when Mrs. Pelosi was speaker uh, earlier, uh, from 2007 on, uh, the, there were the first vote where she didn't, uh, which passed the House but did not achieve a majority of her caucus was the U.S.-Peru Free Trade Agreement. It's why the other three free trade agreements got stuck uh, at that point, or at least one of the reasons. But these are these are really difficult issues for the party. And even, even when, and if you look back to 2015, when President Obama tried to advance trade promotion authority, uh, he had a very difficult time getting support from his own party. And, and just to tie this up, I mean, after all, this election was not about trade. Correct. Correct. Exactly. You can find a, a, a small number of places where it had an impact, and I think a couple were mentioned, I think, Heitkamp ran out and lost. The guy who represents the, the Iron Range in Minnesota ran out and won. Steel yep, tariffs yep. are popular there. Uh, Mike Bost in Illinois, who represents Granite City, Illinois, where they restarted the steel plant. Uh, he won when a couple of his Republican colleagues lost. Uh, Sherrod Brown won, but he was going to win anyway. Yeah. It's hard to find. The, the and, place, Heitkamp, and Heitkamp was going to lose anyway because she voted against Kavanaugh, Kavanaugh and North Dakota. The interesting races we need to know more about are in Iowa, where two Republican incumbents were defeated. Yeah. Uh, and that's a hard hit state on corn and soybeans, both. Right. Uh, Kansas, where two Republicans were defeated. And you have a Democratic and, governor. And, and, and where and, the and Democratic, Democratic governor, governor won. Yeah. In Kansas. And even in Oklahoma, there was one district that turned blue. Yes. Uh, it was, a, uh, I think, the Oklahoma City district. It wasn't a rural district. Yeah, suburban. But uh, we can do some, um, we need to do some more research. But it appears that there may have been isolated pockets where the issue made a difference, but nationally, I don't see I don't see a big impact. Okay, well, we'll, we'll we're going to be talking about this more in days and weeks and months to come on the trade guys. But but we can't not talk with Ambassador Tim Grosser about the bigger picture. Uh, Ambassador Grosser, first question I really have to ask you is: Do Silicon Valley billionaires often hit you up for good advice on land deals in your country of New Zealand because they're preparing for the end of days? Unfortunately, no, because they've read the data, which is that New Zealand is the least corrupt country in the world. And, so they, and I, I thought it was going to be no a winner for, for me, but there's nothing in it at all. No, never, never been hit up, never been tempted. Okay. Okay. Well, it wasn't suggesting you were tempted. I just, I've been reading a lot about how guys who have a lot of stuff out in Silicon Valley, they spend their time thinking about how they can set up away from the United States for when the end of days comes and they can actually live in a peaceful place. You're like suggesting New it'll be a month later uh, <laughs> in, in New Zealand. Yeah, there's a whole lot of jokes around that. <laughs> right, uh, right, you know, right. New Zealand was very accurately called the last stop on the planet. Oh. Um, but uh, it's not just Silicon I mean, the, the reality is a, is a lot of mega-rich Americans have been doing this for quite some time. Julian Roberts, not Silicon Valley. Yeah. Uh, for example, a fantastic American who's put in, you know, he's the Tiger, fund, uh, Tiger Hedge Fund guy, um, put in hundreds of millions of dollars into New Zealand, particularly conservation, uh, built some fabulous golf courses, made a fantastic contribution. So we're we're really supportive of these um, super-rich Americans. A lot of movies have been filmed in New Zealand. Oh, yeah. No, we have a really, really good relationship with the very well-off Americans who come and invest time and money in our country. And haven't you imposed some restrictions on We've imposed on restrictions housing on housing, but I don't really think Julian Roberts wanted to buy an Auckland house. You know, Tell so. us a little bit about how you're a trade guy, because you have an enormous amount of experience and have been doing this for a long time at a very high level. I'll give you a personal sort of view. I, I, 
I was originally intended to be an academic economist, and um, I got a phone call from my uh, very mature wife, 18 years old, and she said, <laughs> I'm pregnant, get a real job. Ah. So, um, okay, that was the doctorate down the proverbial. So I had a choice of three jobs very shortly thereafter. One was because I'd been leading, the leading child actor in New Zealand uh, because my parents were both professional actors. It's not surprising, you know, when... The Tell people us what, need what, children, what, they use their own. So, so, so you were the leading child actor. Child in actor, yeah. And I, so I'd carry this You were the Macaulay Culkin of New Zealand. Yeah, without the cash behind it. Got it. And okay. so I had a choice of three jobs. One was to play the young lead male on a new TV soap opera. I'd been on a previous one. The other was to join uh, one of the most chaotic rock bands because I'd also played bass, guitar, and rock groups. And the third was so the straight guy. To my ears. Join the New Zealand Treasury as a junior economist. Ah. I had just enough sense at that age to pick the third option. So I became a junior economist in the New Zealand Treasury. I became interested in economic reform because New Zealand in those days was um, looked like the Politburo on a bad day. It was deeply protected by import licensing and extraordinarily high tariffs. It was a complete mess. So we in the Treasury, we knew we had to start by pulling down frontier protection to get a, an economy into shape. That's why I became interested in trade. I then moved to um, play a, you know, as a junior person, but quite influential role technically in designing uh, what was considered to be the world gold standard FTA of the day, the CER, the FTA between Australia and New Zealand of the late 70s and early 80s. I learned huge amounts politically as well as technically from that. Then I went to Geneva, eventually became New Zealand's chief negotiator for multilateral, played a, um, a reasonably important role in, in the Uruguay run, pulling agriculture, services, intellectual property into the world system of rules, designed largely and enforced by the United States. Then I went uh, off a sojourn to Indonesia, and then I wrote the first think piece that led to TPP, so which we I want think, to talk about, which here. is you know an interesting thing. We haven't got time to go into the negotiating history here, but so I've been with TPP for eighteen years, and this is why I say anyone who wants to get involved in strategic trade policy who's into instant gratification, forget it, buddy. You know, <laughs> wrong career you, move. Oh, forget it. Wrong <laughs> career move. You're really you know. the father of it. Yes, well, father well, of I, the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Stop short of saying that, but I wrote the think piece that persuaded George Yeo, who was Singapore's trade minister, that Seattle was going to fail, there would be no Seattle round, and we, New Zealand and Singapore, are two small, very pro-trade countries. We need to find a way of bringing the United States into the Asia-Pacific. So let's start here, get some momentum, and then see if the Americans are interested. Well, I mean, the strategy actually worked. It's just that... Until the last moment. Well, but well, let's talk about that because actually it has worked. It's yes. just without yes. the yes. I mean, United States. The agreement is entering into force. And okay. then so I let's, went back, let's, just just yeah. two other things. Yeah. I stood for director general on the basis of um, uh, when I saw so I left. I was chairman of the rules group in Geneva for the. This is where we met, of course, right. uh, the WTO. originally the WTO, and then chairman of agriculture group after the collapse of the WTO negotiations in Cancun in 2003. Mm -hmm. Then I joined the dark side, went into politics, became trade minister for seven years, um, negotiated many agreements, including one I uh, think is intriguing politically, a comprehensive FTA with Taiwan by another name. And then um, I 
came up here to be ambassador, and I'm on my way home the day after tomorrow, and if anything I say causes them to declare me persona non grata, I've left Dodge City 48 hours ago. <laughs> well, we, well, can, did, we did, can always hold off releasing well, well, this until, I mean, we, we, until you arrive. Yeah. <laughs> I, th- there, there's an awful lot here, but I, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you, did you keep up your chops on the bass guitar? No, I, I, I dropped it for 30 years as the normal exigencies of children and stuff yeah. goes, yeah. you know, okay. marriage, you know, blah, blah and trying to climb up the greasy pole to make a career of oneself as a young person. I started playing um, uh, electric guitar, jazz guitar, about 10, 15 years ago, and I, I don't have much time to practice, but yeah. that, that's what I do. So I do some basic jazz, blues-oriented stuff, you know, as anyone who would worship at the feet of Donald Fagan would. Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, the, the, well, this this is good. I mean, now we're talking Donald Fagan of Steely Dan, of course, so that's... This For your listeners, w- the greatest innovative rock band of the last 40 years. I will not disagree with that. But let's talk about the Trans-Pacific Partnership. So the United States has withdrawn the first week of President Trump's uh, uh, term in office. He withdrew the United States from the TPP. What's happening now and, and, and how is – did the United States squander a chance to build a robust coalition that would push back against China's uh, unfair trade practices? Well – this is a very interesting question because actually the – so what what happens that when – before uh, the U.S. formally joined and the previous Republican administration had been sniffing around the core of the TPP, it was an agreement called P4 or Pacific 4 for some time, and then – President Obama's people, Mike Froman and Ron Cook, took a bit of time to get into this. But eventually when the U.S. came, of course, it transformed everything. This became an in, moved it from being an intriguing but largely irrelevant little footnote in history of trade policy to being the big kahuna. Now, although the United States has left, because the United States left after it was negotiated and thanks to frankly, incredible political leadership by Prime Minister Abe, we've actually preserved a great deal of the acquis, as the Europeans call it, the acquired, meaning the the, the substantive achievements of U.S. power inside the successor agreement called the CPTPP. Think of it as TPP without the United States. So the mark of the United States on things like the provisions on SOEs, the complete lack of special and differentiated treatment, in this agreement. The mark of the U.S. is still right front and center. So the U.S. is actually influencing from its past activity. It's just not part of the deal at the moment. Now, it's it's coming into force within weeks. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think we need to get technical here. There are, there's issues around um, what, are called, what trade law is called ratification processes. Think of it as 99.9% done. It would take an asteroid attack on Tokyo in the next six weeks to but stop. But all the political this. commitments are in all, hand. Everything's it's in just line. It's, it's just now a procedural uh, wait right. uh, of very short duration, and it'll come into effect probably late this year, actually, or at worst early next year. And this is about 14%. I mean, obviously, we would love to have had the United States in. The United States hasn't tried to put pressure on us, the remaining guys, to stop doing this. It's just said, well, that's your call, and that's that's fine, and it just, but it will be a big deal. Has the U.S. reputation as a fair and predictable negotiator taken a hit? Well, I mean, the, 
this can't be answered with a simple political response. The reality here is that we are obviously concerned about certain aspects of trade policy. I'm not saying anything that hasn't been said by my leaders in public. I mean, uh, is New Zealand steel and aluminium imports a strategic security threat to the United States? In our view, obviously not. Were we pleased that the United States withdrew from TPP? Obviously not. But when you start to get down into the substance of this, that becomes a little grayer and a little more nuanced. You know, I stood for Director General of the WTO in 2012. I didn't get there because I didn't exactly choose a winning platform. I wouldn't accept the conventional wisdom that it was, quote, the turn of a developing country. I think, what is this, some UN foreign policy exercise? This institution is in deep trouble. Yeah. And secondly, I said, if you think, and this is not wisdom after the event, as you know, Scott, Mm -hmm. if you think that the judicial arm of the WTO rests in some hermetically sealed zone from the complete failure of the WTO to advance rules and negotiations, you are dreaming. The cancer will spread from one lung to the other. The ambassador was one of the few to recognize that the WTO was really running on fumes, politically speaking, at the time. So the point is that when you, you know, the conventional critique of the administration's trade policy fastens on the fact that they've broken a whole lot of eggs to try and make an omelette. We'll get to whether making an omelette will be the outcome or not in a minute, but the substance of U.S. concerns have a lot of legitimacy in it. What um, Ambassador Lighthizer is saying is identical to what I said about the appellate body, for example. Vast judicial overreach, failure to understand the political limits of erosion of, so- uh, of, of, erosion of sovereignty. Uh, 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 you know, all of these things, we have some sympathy for the United States. The issue of special and differentiated treatment. I don't think I'd be regarded as a super hardliner, but I can tell you this, to take a practical example. The, we've just, we in the United States, New Zealand and the United States, have just finished, after a long struggle, a highly successful WTO challenge on Indonesia's agricultural restrictions. This was costing us you know, hundreds of millions of dollars a year. I don't know what it was for the US. And, but that wasn't the real driver behind my decision when I was trade minister to work with the former administration to take this case. It was based on this is the fourth largest economy in, sorry, country in the world by population, not fourth largest economy. In, 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 Indonesia. 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 Right. right. They call themselves a small developing country. I'm sorry, it is time for Indonesia to start to take up some of the obligations of the system. And I talked at length to people who would be perfectly comfortable. This administration would have done the same thing, I'm sure. Yeah, Burkina Faso is a small developing country. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. It's time to move on this issue. You know, and when I think about the WTO, I remember, I I mean, geez, in difficult straits now, but there was a time when the legendary Jack Walsh was its CEO. And remember what he said, when the speed of change outside your organization is faster than the rate of change inside, the end is not far. Now, an organization is not a company. Organizations don't go bankrupt like companies go bankrupt through a loss of the plot. What they do is they, they seed relevance. Yeah, the they relevance, lose their mojo. They lose their mojo. This is an issue of the highest importance given what's happened in a global sense to world trade. So I don't want you to 
support to try and think that I don't understand what's driving uh, some pretty extreme policies of the United States. But I share some of those concerns personally, and I'm on the record as having done that. That's interesting. I mean, how do you see the – so now the TPP is called the CPTPP. How is that going without the United States in your view? Um, It's going really well because the Japanese have stepped up to the mark. And – I mean, I have astonishing every observer. Astonishing, absolutely. No one ever expected that. Look, I remember. (laughs) I can say this because I've said such positive things about their prime minister. I think he's just outstanding. Prime Minister Abe. Yeah, absolutely outstanding leader. Um, But in the past, you know, uh, small guys like us and big guys like U.S. We're tearing our hair out at why doesn't Japan, the third largest economy in the world, so share some leadership with the United States for an open trading system? And we could never see it. They would come with three different ministers to speak from three different points of view. To their enormous credit, they started to sort themselves out actually through TPP. So they appointed a single minister for the first time to be a single voice. There was, it's not like Japan's the only country that has interagency difficulties. I mean, every single country in the world has got different agency views when it comes to trade. But we reconcile this, or try to, through a single stream into a single person who's mm-hmm. responsible. And the Japanese have finally got there around about five or six years ago. And that's why it's going forward. That's why it's succeeding. You know, it was pretty slick, too, when Abe went down to Mar-a-Lago and gave President Trump a golden golf club. You can't forget about that. The guy's I mean, good. Yeah. I want to come back to the omelet and the eggs for a minute because you said the same thing that a lot of people have been saying in a number of contexts about the administration, which is essentially right diagnosis but wrong prescription, hmm. that on the WTO, the problems they've identified are legitimate, serious problems uh, that need to be addressed. Uh, public opinion here on China, same thing, that the administration has identified serious problems that need to be addressed. The controversy is over the prescription. What do you do about it? Yeah. So let's do the WTO for a minute. Uh, right diagnosis, what would have been the right answer for us, the, the right thing to do to actually address these problems and not just let them fester? I will try and be f- as objective as I can and say I think to some extent some violence had to be done to get people's attention. I uh, remember, if you can afford me the privilege of uh, going off track a tiny bit to make the point. We do that all the time, please. <laughs> one, of my, one of my greatest <laughs> Welcome men- to the trade, guys. <laughs> one of my greatest mentors when I was a young man, he, taught, he was one of my professors of economics and he later turned into the brilliant academic mind behind the New Zealand Central Bank, uh, introduced me to what he called the donkey theory of management. Now, the donkey theory of management. Scott is smiling. Is, we just, we yeah. could maybe use this. Yeah, yeah. Well, you have in the WTO. <laughs> Bill decides um, that uh, he, he sees me, a struggling peasant farmer, with my only one asset, which is a donkey, and the donkey won't move. And I'm not strong enough to make the donkey move. Bill is from Boston or one of the great consultants. Whatever. And he says, I can Chicago, help you. Boston, I can give you advice thing. on how to get your donkey's attention. I say, well, I can't afford your rates. He says, no, 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 we do pro bono. We do pro bono. So I said, well, if I don't have to pay, sure. So Bill comes up to my donkey, my only asset. It picks up a giant mallet and smashes the donkey right in the middle of the forehead. The donkey falls to the floor with its legs splayed, and that's the end of the story, except that I asked Bill, what the hell did you do that for? And Bill says, because there are occasions when you've got to get their attention. Now, 
We don't know whether that donkey got up again and survived and moved forward or not. Be sure if that he did survive, he would have learned the lesson. We're still at the stage now where, as a result of these technical maneuvers that I know we we, we understand, but we don't need to get into them, um, the hammer blow has been put through the judicial process of the appointment judges. Basically, we're either right at it now or will be where nobody's at home to hear the cases. And when you have a dysfunctional dispute settlement process, then it calls into question the political solidity of a whole set of rules that underlay the entire global supply chain of the world, right? So we don't know whether the donkey whether we got the donkey's attention. I'm prepared to concede personally that sometimes the donkey theory of management needs to be done. What I don't know is, has somebody in the system here, the most important country in the world, actually got a plan to get the donkey up again and move forward? I don't know. Well, I think it is up again, uh, at least staggering. You've got the Canadian effort, the meeting in Ottawa, I guess now two weeks ago, with 13 countries, including yours, uh, to uh, uh, try to develop an approach. You've got a paper from the EU. You've got a trilateral effort from the US, EU, and Japan to deal with the China problem, which underlies a number of these issues. Uh, Are any of those well, you know, there, there's actually a signal a, that the donkey's an, getting up or there's not. There's an important thread to pull out of all those efforts, which is there's finally a recognition that the that you've got to get away from the guise of a single undertaking and solve all known problems, and that, that the institution needs to make some progress. And that, for me, is that's a salutary improvement. I, I think the clear answer is yes, you're right, Bill. There are signs of the donkeys beginning to twitch and come to life again. We just don't know whether the attack has been so fatal that we can actually get it to move forward. It's not just having a stroke. It may actually be <laughs> it's so, so I, I, gathering I think strength. There, there are some signs of that. The Canadian meeting, I think, um, was, was a good one. And the guy that succeeded me as trade minister came and spoke to Ambassador Lighthouse before we went up there because we didn't want this to be seen by your system as an anti-American thing. Uh, China didn't come either. And how did that way. go? I think it went reasonably well. But, I mean, this is going to take a long rebuilding. Well, that's that. We've talked to the Canadians about this. In fact, we're talking to the Canadians later today, uh, and I think the clear message we got from them is that this is going to take a long time. I mean, everything takes a long time at the WTO, and this one in particular will take some time. Uh, I'm not sure with this administration whether we have time, and that's what well, worries me. Yeah. Well, I mean, well, they we definitely can... know the donkey story. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there are people, as you know, there are people who say the intention is not, in fact, to make the donkey walk forward again. Sure. Um, I mean, this is the, I mean, I'm not going to ascribe this to any particular individual, but but it's it's a a matter of skeptical or cynical view of of the administration's action. Well, we've, yeah, we've talked about that before. And the other other argument is the, the variation of this apocryphal quote from Vietnam, we had to destroy the village in order to save it. And that, you know, we, we, we have to destroy the appellate body uh, and then we'll build something that's better. And I'm baffled by the latter statement. I don't see how you're going to come up with anything that's better uh, because it will almost certainly be a, a, a GATT-based voluntary structure, which I think would be a huge step back. I always wind up going back to uh, our, our Geneva ambassador, Dennis Shea's comment to Bill at a CSIS event is that we're being – disruptively constructive. Yeah, I know and, the phrase. And I don't know whether the adjective or adverb prevails here. <laughs> so I just think that we out. should immediately take your ambassador to court for a vast breach of intellectual property theft. 
because he clearly stole this from Schumpeter, creative destruction. <laughs> is he aware of this? Shall I start well, a case immediately that against That sounds him? like a good plan when you... Uh, well, well, but, I mean, he's absolutely right. So we've done the disruptive part. Right. Are we going to get to the constructive part is the question that all of us here Correct. are grappling with. You know, he does have an IP problem because we had a we had a closed-door session with him before the public mm. session when he said that. And he was asked another question, and he, he said the same thing you had said, which is, uh, in effect, you, you know, you can't make an omelet uh, without breaking yep. eggs, which, of course, is from Lenin, uh, which he apparently didn't know. Lenin. Yes. Okay. I wonder what that sounds like. Are talking John Lennon no, or, or, no, or Russia? Vladimir. Vladimir. Yeah. Okay. yeah I, the or other Nikolai. One. The other one. The I suspect that, one. Yeah. Trent, that something may have been lost in translation, that if we could all speak fluent p- Russian, it would sound much more lethally dangerous in Russian, don't you think? <laughs> Most likely. I, I'm still tripping out about the donkey. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I mean, if you go back to my anecdote about my attempt to convince the WTO when I stood for director general, uh, guys, we have a real problem here. No, no, nobody wants to hear this, you know. And the amount of spin that was going on, trying to create tiny little procedural things as some giants. To, I mean, give me a break, you know. So the first thing was to shift the underlying attitude that actually we're doing fine. No, you are not. Second step is to start now slowly building up the substantive shifts in direction. I don't think it's appropriate to start to try and draft something that's legally binding or anything like that. Start to talk about what do we need to fix? I mean, for example, some of it is old-fashioned plumbing. Like, if I look back on my career as a professional trade negotiator, not as a politician, so I always felt I had much more power as a chief negotiator of my country than I ever had as a minister of trade, for reasons I won't go into. But One of the things I'm most disappointed about was the proposal I put forward in the Uruguay round for reform of Article 19, the General Safeguards Agreement. It wasn't usable. And I knew the steam in the kettle needed. I'm not some ideological free trade. I totally believe that that's the direction we should be going. But I recognize politics. And oh, yeah, safeguards are basically... Safeguards are fundamental. We don't yeah. have an effective safeguard for dealing with fair trade. Right. Actually, CVD and AD contrary to what some of this country think, actually do work. That's why Chinese imports of steel and aluminium are down to, what, sure. 2% or something of that ilk? Exactly. They yes. have worked. That's right. And the, the problem the, is fair trade. And that's the tool politicians could most benefit from and I put because you stay on the right track. perfectly sensible proposal. I won't go into it now because it gets into deeply technical stuff quickly about just having the right to it when you need time out politically. Yes. And the extremists in the developing world killed my proposal. So, you know, I think you've got to start talking about a range of, frankly, fundamental old issues mm-hmm. like that around the base, the juridical base to special and differentiated treatment, which is the 1979 enabling clause. And then we have to get into 21st century issues. Start to build up consensus. But don't think you can, that there's somehow some, if only we could find the magic solution, we could then move this game forward. No, no, because we can't do this without the United States. Speaking of the United States, there's something on the horizon that I think we should um, discuss here. President Trump and President Xi of China are likely to meet at the G20. Um, is there a breakthrough that might happen with them? And, and what would that mean for the rest of the world? 
Well, you know that it will be the most successful meeting in, in history, or at least the most successful meeting since the Kim Jong-un meeting. It'll be a huge so it'll meeting. It'll be a huge success. It'll be yeah. luxurious. Yeah. And Definitely. The, the, Beautiful. Well, there are, the rumor is there may be Chinese coming here next week to, right. get, to get ready for it. To meet with our uh, trade ministers. Yeah, well, we will see. Yeah. Uh, it, it depends a little bit on who shows up. Uh, that you get With China, you can learn a lot by who they send. Uh, and so like we don't know who's going to show up until they get off the plane? Uh, I think we'll know before they get off the plane. But when I heard the rumor yesterday, we didn't know uh, okay. who it was going to be. So we will find out. My guess you can is, ask Peter Navarro because he's going to be here tomorrow at that, CSIS. Well, there you go. Okay. Uh, if he will, he know probably. I, you would think. Well, uh, I'm not so sure. We'll see. All right. Well, your your, anyway. your your job tomorrow though is to ask Peter Navarro when he is coming on the trade guys. That's what you guys need to do. I'll be there if you want me to ask that question. Yeah, you got to ask that because I'm going to be in New Orleans. Yeah. So right. you guys got you guys you guys. Is it, is, is it in the morning or when is it? Yeah, it's in the morning. Then I'm teaching, so Scott has to do it. Okay, well, right. let's see Scott, if I can. Scott's on. Well, it. So there's plank. a high hanging curveball over the yeah. plate that yeah. I've got Scott, to smack out of the park. Scott anyway. is totally on it. All right, <laughs> getting yeah. back to the actual question. Yeah. yeah, it seems to me that the most likely thing is that they will agree to have a real and serious negotiation, and that they each will appoint somebody very high up to undertake that. In our case, probably Lighthizer. In their case. The good sign would be Wang Qishan, uh, who's the vice president, and yeah. and uh, which is not quite the same as well. Maybe this is kind of the same as our similar, vice, as our more vice similar president. than it's been in the past. Important but, guy but, in China. Yeah, important guy that the president in this, in that case has confidence in to to have a discussion. It's hard for me to imagine, given the breadth of our complaints, that we can work out something between now and the end of November. The only way we could do that is if the president does what people expected him to do last spring, which is to settle for a cheap market access deal. All right, but you know, if they we, buy more soybeans, they buy more LNG, they buy more planes. Right, but as you've, been, as you've said, flipping the switch on and off is not easy. And if the president doesn't work out a deal with Chinese coming soon, you're talking about some potential, it wasn't an issue in this midterm election trade, but it certainly could be an election in two years. It certainly well, could be yes, an election in two of, years. I mean, he's got two pieces of leverage, and he has he, he loves to threaten. Uh, one piece is the tariffs that will go from 10% to 25% on January 21st. Uh, January 1st, you can do that, or you cannot do it. And the other piece is the additional $257 billion worth of st- stuff that doesn't have tariffs on them yet. You can do that or not do that. Uh, he'll probably threaten both, uh, already has. Uh, my guess is that they won't do the latter, uh, and they will do the former, uh, unless they're making progress, in which case maybe and when, they'll hold and off. Maybe they'll just have a plan to make progress. Uh, also, look, China's a part of this calculation as well. Uh, today, the qu- third quarter balance of payments was reported, and China had the first negative, essentially capital outflow, n- net investment outflow since the 2016. So th- things aren't sunny in in, uh, in China at the moment as well, at least in terms of investor sentiment. So right. there's 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 motive there's motive for action on both parts. Got it, got it. Ambassador, this has been fantastic having you on. Um, your insights are invaluable. What what advice do you have for Americans as they look at trade unfolding over the next several years? Uh, to employ my new company, Grocer and Associates. <laughs> there you go. All right. Grocer and Associates, how do we reach you? Um, I'll create it as soon as I hit the ground, and um, my fees will be outrageous. Okay. Well, th- that's we love that. So you know, This is I, Washington. People are accustomed to that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When, I, when I first 
was thinking about going in the private sector a long time ago. I met with someone who had done that, and I asked him for advice on fees. And his advice was, figure out what you're worth, and then triple it, and then add 20%. So that's my There's advice. the formula. Okay. I love it. To our listeners, if you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the Trade Guys react to it. We're now also streaming on Spotify, so you can find us there too. How cool. Thank you, Trade Guys. Thanks, Andrew. You've been listening to the Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.